Peniel E. Joseph is the Barbara Jordan Professor of Political Values and Ethics at the LBG, LBJ School of Public Affairs and Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. He has written several books previous on African-American history, including Stokely, A Life, and he lives in Austin, Texas. David Waters is Minister for Education and Membership at King's Chapel, a close neighbor to the Athenaeum. A former Chief Navy Counselor, he holds degrees from Parkland College, St. Mary's College of Maryland, and the Harvard Divinity School. He is also a member of the Athenaeum. Professor Joseph is with us to talk about his new book on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., The Sword and the Shield. For most Americans, the two leaders represent contrasting ideas, self-defense versus nonviolence, black power versus civil rights. The Wall Street Journal calls the new book incisive as it explores how history has turned both men into caricatures. Please join me in welcoming Peniel Joseph and David Waters. So David, are you, am I starting or? I think, I think, well, so, <laughs> well, why don't I start us off here? Okay. So I'm um, local here in Boston. Uh, welcome, Peniel. Uh, welcome to Boston, virtually. Uh, I think we'll start um, uh, by maybe if you give us a brief overview of, of the book. I think I'd, I'd maybe, I'll let you go where you'd like to go, but I might prompt you um, by saying, what surprised you the most uh, as you were doing your research? I was talking to a friend who was quite excited that we were gonna have this conversation. And he said, I wonder what surprised him the most as he was going through and, and doing this research and maybe a little bit about what brought you to the project. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, um, David, for being the interlocutor to, <laughs> tonight. Um, and this is a return um, to Boston for me. I'm a native New Yorker, but I spent eight years in Boston uh, most of those at Tufts, um, but also at Brandeis mm. and some time at Harvard as well. So, um, you know, to all the friends out there, it's it's going to be great to see everyone um, post-pandemic, mm. uh, God willing. Um, you know, the, this, the, the thing I found most surprising was how deeply Malcolm and Martin influenced each other. Um, they met one time in 1964, uh, March 22nd at the U.S. Senate. Uh, but Malcolm actually goes to Harlem and sees King speak in December as well, December 17th uh, at the uh, Harlem 369th Armory um, after King wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And he's sitting next to Andy Young, who's one of King's lieutenants. And um, that was surprising. I had never seen that before. Uh, so th those are some of the nuggets in terms of the research. Um, but really the broad overview of the book is this, this metaphor of the sword and the shield and moving away from these, these polarities, you know, American dream versus nightmare mm -hmm. that King and, and Malcolm X seem to be caught up in, uh, pushing back against that through this braided dual biography and really making an argument that they were both political sword and shield. So mm -hmm. Malcolm X 
um, is really obviously the boldest critic of white supremacy against white supremacy of the 20th century, but he's also a human rights leader and a human rights advocate. Uh, so Malcolm X goes from being um, Black America's prosecuting attorney uh, and King being America's Black America's defense attorney uh, to really playing both roles, right? Mm -hmm. um, Malcolm um, talks about the ballot or the bullet by 1964. Mm -hmm. So he sees some room for uh, the transformation of democratic institutions, not be, because he ever believes in democracy, uh, but he believes in black people, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, King, um, in contrast, especially after Malcolm's assassination, really comes to be both um, the political shield and sword. I mean, he writes in the essay Beyond the Los Angeles Riots in 1965 that he's gonna use nonviolent civil disobedience as a political sword. Mm -hmm. And that's what Malcolm had excoriated King and the March on Washington for not being a muscular enough display that if black people got together, they could shut down the entire system of US capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and state sanctioned violence um, with their bodies, right? Um, and so when we think about both of these uh, activists and these icons, um, Malcolm advocating for radical black dignity that I call and King radical black citizenship. And when we break those down, what Malcolm meant by radical black dignity, uh, David is really the end of what he called world white supremacy. And for those of us who want to know what world white supremacy is, part of it was seen at the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But in a lot of ways, we've seen it um, through the entire Trump administration. We've seen world white supremacy in a bipartisan way with Democrats and Republicans uh, feasting off of the super exploitation of black bodies uh, in terms of mass incarceration. Uh, we've seen white supremacy uh, in social movements, when we think about LGBTQIA and how our Black queer folks and trans folks are treated differently than their white counterparts, uh, even to the point of getting access to HIV and AIDS medications uh, right up until today. Uh, we see it in every single supply chain of power and privilege that's a reservoir for whites and grief and misery uh, that, is that Black folks are subjected to. So when Malcolm says he wanted an end to world white supremacy, he met John F. Kennedy, Eisenhower, but he also met just the casual, the white quotidian mm -hmm. as well. And that's why so many white folks hated Malcolm X mm -hmm. because Malcolm X spoke truth to power and Malcolm X refused to play the dozens with white folks. He wasn't defending black humanity to anyone. He was just trying to convince black people that their liberation uh, would reside in the last place they ever cared to look in their own traditions, in their own communities, but also connecting us to Africa and the Caribbean. So before Kwame Touré, who I've written a biography of, Stokely Carmichael called us and told us we, we were all African people, Malcolm did, right? And Malcolm visited the Middle East for the first time in 1959 and basically spends half the year in 1964 in Africa. And remember, the Middle East is Africa when people talk about the Middle East. You know, they're talking about Africa, right? And sometimes we say North Africa um, because, you know, we, we are so uh, anti-Black, right? You know, but we're talking about Africa. So when you go to Egypt, it's in Africa, everybody, just to let you know. So Malcolm was in Egypt, he was in Ghana, he was in Tanzania, he was in Liberia, he was in Cairo, he was at the Organization of African Unity Conference, and he really both implored, cajoled, 
um, but threatened uh, African revolutionaries and said, if you don't connect your movement to the movement for black liberation in the United States and around the world, uh, this is also a fraud. You know, we are your, your blood relatives, right? Um, and so when we think about Malcolm X, what's extraordinary is that he's prosecuting white America for a series of crimes against black humanity that date back to racial slavery that continued in his time and continue in our own time, you know? And so what's interesting about the relationship with him and Dr. King is that we've used Dr. King's holiday to push and amplify um, a false notion of American exceptionalism, right? So even Barack Obama um, believes in American exceptionalism. I read his book, his book is right behind me. I teach him, he loves American exceptionalism. And American exceptionalism is really based on a lie. And the lie is, two, there's, there's really two big lies um, that American exceptionalism is based on that during the end of his life, Dr. King pushes back against. Mm -hmm. The first big lie is uh, the lie of racial slavery dehumanizing black people to the point that uh, we were defined legally as a species of property. That's mm -hmm. a big traumatic lie that we've never gotten uh, over because we refuse to confront it, right? Uh, James Baldwin talked about that lie. Malcolm X talks about that lie. Angela Davis talks about that lie. So many different uh, black folks have talked about it. The second lie, and this is when you get into American exceptionalism and the American century and the Cold War and Cold War liberalism, is that America is liberty's surest guardian. Uh, we defend um, the, the weak from the strong. Uh, we are this, uh, this country uh, that God is shining a light on. And we also are a place where everything is possible because we do a few things. We refuse to talk about racial slavery. We refuse to talk about settler colonialism. We refuse to talk about genocide, anti-Semitism. We refuse to talk about violence against poor people, against queer people. But the big thing too is that we lie about the first lie. Mm -hmm. okay? So we lie. And that's why, you know, right now the contemporary 1619 project and then Trump's white supremacist 1776 commission. These are all based on lies that have to end, right? And what's interesting about Malcolm's influence on King, initially King realizes aspects of the lie, but is trying to stay within the lines, right? Mm -hmm. He's trying to color within the lines because he thinks that, hey, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, we're gonna get some freedom, right? Mm -hmm. What transforms King is the Watts Rebellion in 1965. And the Watts Rebellion is connected to the Black Lives Matter movement because what BLM has argued is that the criminal justice system in the United States of America represents a gateway to panoramic systems of oppression. Everything from food injustice to environmental racism to public school segregation and poor schools to our kids uh, dying of asthma and getting expelled and being connected to the prison, probation, parole pipeline, right? Um, everything from uh, the outcomes of uh, black women and poor maternal birth outcomes, those who are poor, but also those who are middle-class. So the criminal justice system is connected to voter suppression. It's connected to anti-black violence. It's connected to poor healthcare and public safety. And it's connected to investing in systems of violence that are there ever since reconstruction in the convict lease system to not only destroy black people, 
but to super exploit them and to garner value for them at the, 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 their own expense, right? So the ghettos that we see, the marginalization that we see all around us is intimately connected to lily white suburbs and racist gentrification in Boston, in Philly, in Austin, in Oakland, around the whole country. What's extraordinary about King, and I'll close, mm. in the last three years of his life, King is a, is a man on fire speaking these truths that Malcolm had tried to speak in the preceding decade. That, and that's what the sword and the shield is really about. It, the person who really has the come to Jesus moment, I'm an old Christian boy from Southside Jamaica, Queens. The person who saw on the road to Damascus, mm. the person who goes down the Jericho road, the person who's the prophet Amos and Jeremiah uh, is Martin Luther King Jr. Right? Martin Luther King Jr. becomes a pillar of fire saying all of this must end, that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, that the United States is, is, is morally reprehensible and politically indefensible. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no more Nobel Peace Prizes or Time Magazine Man of the Year. White folks hate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he's assassinated. There are white folks dancing in the streets on April 4th and April 5th and April 6th and April 7th, 1968. Those are just facts. Those are just facts. He's anti-imperialist. He's anti-capitalist. He's anti-racist. He says we need to build a beloved community, but we don't have the political maturity to do what, David? Confront all the lies, mm. all the lies. But the first person who had confronted them was who? Malcolm X. It was Malcolm, right? So when Malcolm says you can't stick a knife in a person's back nine inches and put it out six inches and call that progress, right? That was Malcolm X. So I think their relationship is extraordinary. But again, we've used, we've demonized Malcolm and then we, we use King um, to continue to perpetuate the lie, right? Mm -hmm. So the lie is the lie of dehumanization, uh, Dred Scott, the lie that the Civil War and the Lost Cause wasn't fought about racial slavery and 700,000 people died. The lie is uh, the Thomas Jefferson, Hall Sally Hemings had an extraordinary romance, mm -hmm. even though she was 14, right? These are all these lies, right? And so our country is built on a foundation of lies, but as we know, a foundation of lies is what? Um, it's a foundation of sinking sand, right? So when everybody keeps on saying, our democracy is strong, it's obvious that our democracy is not strong, right? Strong democracies don't get attacked, <laughs> right? In broad daylight with the cops and the military helping them, right? Right? So, so what's extraordinary for us about Dr. King uh, is, is the way he's willing to speak truth to power. But what I wanted to show in The Sword and the Shield is the relationship between him and Malcolm and Malcolm being in, integral to the radical king, the revolutionary king. And that's the king that we need now more than ever because that's the king. We, 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 I'm a generation Xer, David. We grew up on the matrix and the red pill, blue pill. And you took that pill and you found out like, <laughs> wow, this is how the reality is. You know? So Dr. King has to take a pill too. Malcolm had taken that pill in prison. Mm. Malcolm took the pill in prison. The only new pill he needed was a pill to see that, hey, there were aspects in the Nation of Islam um, that, that weren't what he wanted them to be, and he, he goes out on his own. 
Um, but King needed a bigger pill too, to see what the depth and breadth of racism, what white supremacy was. And once he took the pill, uh, he never goes back to the White House again. <laughs> There's no more. Yeah. You know, they, they did, you're disinvited once you speak truth to power. When you tell people that you're on the side of the suffering, when you tell people you're on the side of the marginalized, when you tell everyone from presidents to politicians to power brokers that they need a revolution of values, suddenly the dinner invitations stop. Mm. The pill has consequences. Big yeah. consequences. Yeah. And again, Dr. King's assassinated and so is Malcolm. So Dr. Mm -hmm. King is the apostle of nonviolence, uh, but they don't let him live to see a ripe old age. He would have been 92 a few, few days ago uh, on January 15th. And we all know people who are in America and globally who are 92. So it's not this outsized uh, life and he's assassinated uh, at, at 39. Yeah, yeah. It is, I think, what you've given us here is not only I what I love is that you're able to braid these lives together in such a way and give them give us a sense of their proximity and distance right um, and part of what I was struck by is their origin stories I think one of the things you do for us is in a way rescue these giants from the center right from sainthood you know um, and even as as we progressed and and gotten more distant in time, um, there's certain ways that Malcolm is vilified, but there's also certain ways in which he's held up, right? And so these become two icons for us. And really when we spend more time with them and we get to see them in relation to one another, we understand that there's a multi-dimensionality here um, that's, that's really at play. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, as a minister, I'm especially interested in these. You start the, you start out talking about these were not only political figures, but religious ministers, right? You have the Baptist preacher and um, uh, the, the Muslim minister, right? And so how did that religious faith, and they find it in very different ways, right? Mm -hmm. That faith is, is discovered and cultivated in each of their lives in very different places. You touched on Malcolm being in prison and that kind of being a catalyst um, for his, his discovery of faith, right? Whereas, you know, Martin grows up with Daddy King, you know, and in the yeah. black church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit maybe about that in their lives and maybe as a resource for speaking that truth. Does it, how does that work for them? Yeah, no, David, absolutely. These are men of huge faith. And I, you know, I would say that Malcolm's faith um, begins even earlier. I would say that Louise and Earl Little, um, you know, Malcolm's father's an itinerant Baptist minister, uh, a Garveyite. Um, you know, I think he sees and observes um, practices of faith during his childhood, very traumatic childhood. Uh, his father, you know, the new biography by Les Payne says that his father and Tamara Payne actually died in a streetcar accident. M Malcolm always feels that it was white supremacist, but the biography also shows that Malcolm and his family were menaced by Klan's folks uh, in the Midwest, in the Black Legion in the Midwest. So he had good reason to believe, to surmise that his father had been murdered. Mm -hmm. um, his mother is institutionalized in a psychiatric hospital uh, and he, 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 he suffers a lot and he becomes a juvenile, um, um, really somebody who's, who's engaged in criminal, illegal criminal activities from the age of 12 to 20, really, from East Lansing, Michigan, all the way to Boston and Harlem. Um, I think that 
the faith practices that he witnessed as a young boy really come back to him uh, in prison as his uh, older sister and his, his different siblings are writing to him about the nation of Islam. So in a way, one of the things that I argue in The Sword and the Shield, and I think uh, the new book, The Dead Are Arising shows this too, Malcolm's faith uh, and coming to his faith initially is a family affair where the entire family sort of, uh, you know, his older brother, Wilfred, um, you know, they, they all, uh, you know, uh, Philbert, Wilfred, all of them at various points, Ella Mae Collins are part of the nation of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. And I also argue that Malcolm is a Muslim, um, you know, from around 1948, 49, up until his death. So I push back against um, just sectarianism within religion and that you can only be a Christian if you're part of a specific Christian sect, or you can only be a Muslim if you're part of this specific Christian sect. I, I don't believe that. So I push back against that. So I think Malcolm's faith is very, very deep. And I think that uh, even in prison, he had read aspects of the Muslim faith that were more expansive than the nation of Islam, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a point where he's growing a beard. There's a point where he is demanding and protesting for a cell that faces the east towards Mecca. So he can pray five times a day with other, uh, with other Muslims who are incarcerated. And he's incarcerated right there in Boston, um, in Norfolk, in Concord, in Charlestown, right? But especially in Norfolk, that's where it's a real um, rehabilitation center. Um, so when we think about Malcolm, Malcolm X, his religion and his religious faith is deep. And the Nation of Islam makes an argument that Christianity is connected to slavery, suffering, and death. Uh, and that Islam is the religion of Black people. It's the religion of Afro-Asiatic people. Uh, it's the religion of um, the original people, right? Um, my, my daughter's asked me a question. <laughs> this is, this is the, the world of Zoom. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> The next generation, huh? That's what we're doing this for, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Um, and when, when we think about Malcolm, he talks about uh, the originals and black, black people being the original people. Bye, honey, love you. Um, and, and so his faith is really, really deep and his faith is actually optimistic. Um, Malcolm uh, really not only plums the depths of black trauma, but also black joy uh, and redemption and renewal through his faith. Um, King um, obviously is a black Christian, Ebenezer Baptist church, which is also now uh, the church of Raphael Warnock who became the first black uh, Senator elected from Georgia really in large part because of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and sort of a campaign of the beloved community. But King is really deeply rooted when you think about Howard Thurman and Benjamin Mays and all these folks that you are very well aware of, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, obviously, there's people like James Cone, Jeremiah Wright. There's definitely this, this, this Black social gospel, Black theological, liberation theological tradition. And so he's rooted in that. And uh, his faith is huge. Um, and his faith is what really provides ballast for him over time. So I, I always try to show 
uh, in the book how they're growing in their faith. They're challenged by their faith. Uh, they have doubts at times, um, like all people of faith do. Um, but they really stick to their faith uh, at the end. I mean, so when you look at the personal sincerity, political integrity, the unapologetic love for black people and poor people that they both have, mm. um, by the end of their lives, the thing that they're holding on to besides their families the most uh, is that faith, you know, um, the faith for, for Malcolm of, of the Quran and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going, uh, going, you know, between Mecca and Medina, going on the Hajj, um, and, and thinking about a global Islamic community uh, that would be a community of human rights and sisterhood and brotherhood. Uh, and King, um, a real, real deep faith um, that, that, you know, we think about the prophet Amos and, uh, you know, justice rolling down like, like, a, like a mighty stream. Um, and he says this at the March on Washington as well. And, and we see it in the drum major instinct speech in 1968. We see it in the speech, uh, uh, remaining awake uh, through a great, um, great revolution, which is his last Sunday sermon at the Washington Cathedral, the Passion Sunday speech at the Episcopal Cathedral on March 31st, 1968. And in those speeches, he's both talking about um, uh, biblical literature, he's talking about God's judgment on America uh, in ways that at times Malcolm had talked about, you know, um, 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 you know, and, and Martin King's uh, last sermon that he was going to say why, why uh, America is going to hell. And he, 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 he never finished, he never got to deliver that sermon. But, it, you know, you know uh, Malcolm X had sermons, you know, God's judgment on, 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 on white America, right? And that's why Malcolm had said the chickens are coming home to roost. So th these, are, these are both secular political figures, but at their core, they're deeply religious figures. And obviously King's, the most religious book then becomes Strength to Love. When you read Strength to Love, I mean, that is all about um, the revolution of values, but through um, sort of a meditation and mediation of, of Holy Scripture. Uh, so they're, they're both huge uh, faith leaders. And I think that that's really important to remind people because in a, in a, in a big sense, even beyond or in addition to the social movements that they led, um, they're thinking about uh, answering to a higher power, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think you see their firm integrity, uh, both King and Malcolm um, die uh, really penniless. Um, this is not great for their families and their families struggle, uh, but they were very much uh, committed to not allowing the political fame and celebrity that they that they accumulated to corrupt them. Mm. Uh, in Malcolm's case, we see that with absolutely no romantic infidelities. No, uh, we, we've investigated Malcolm and Malcolm walked the talk. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm walked the talk. There's, there's, there's probably not a more disciplined uh, black political leader in history in terms of their personal discipline um, after prison and after being East Lansing and Detroit Red. In King's case, he was, he was a man of faith who, who had contradictions, who had flaws, who had shortcomings, which are now well-documented, uh, both at times as a scholar, as, as, as a husband, as a, as, a, as a family man. And these, are, these were painful uh, things that he dealt with uh, that tore him apart internally too. So he dealt with a lot of guilt and, and was burdened uh, with the knowledge of his own failures, of his own failures, you know. Whereas with Malcolm, 
he didn't deal with that same kind of guilt. I think Malcolm felt a different kind of guilt, especially once he left the Nation of Islam. And by that time, thought to himself that Elijah Muhammad was no longer the honorable figure that he had presumed. Mm -hmm. He felt a lot of guilt for having um, expanded the reach and power of both this man and this organization. Mm -hmm. He felt a lot of guilt over that. He felt a lot of guilt over having led you know, tens of thousands of people down what he, he now thought of as the wrong road, mm. right? So it's interesting how by the end of their lives, they both were burdened by this, this guilt, but they, they, they never allowed it to take over the larger responsibility of this freedom movement that they were both leading. And I think one of the things that I noted was that that very faith, even though that it was, you know, you're talking about a you know, reaching out to each other across a Christian-Muslim divide. One of the things I remember is um, Malcolm coming down to uh, Selma uh, and King was in jail at the time, but Coretta was there on the stage with him. And, you know, he had heard that report and that moment of wanting to reach out, that moment of connection, recognizing, King recognizing in Malcolm uh, a figure of profound faith, right? Recognizing that even across that Christian Muslim divide um, that, oh no, there's, this is a person of deep faith. Uh, and that's, that's a point of connection, you know, that tragically they never get to um, really explore fully or come into the fullness of, but. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right, um, David. And I think that the trip to Selma and Tuskegee, Alabama is really uh, integral um, and also the trip to the capital because they're they're making um, inroads towards each other. You know, Malcolm tells Coretta Scott King uh, how, how much he admires her husband. He says he's there uh, just to help and not hurt. Um, he tells reporters that too. Um, so in a way, Malcolm is playing sort of the bad cop to King's good cop uh, by by sixty four sixty five. Um, and King, you know, after Malcolm's assassinated, releases this statement where. You know, he talks about very admiringly Malcolm and Malcolm's faith and Malcolm's talent and how Malcolm um, was evolving and how the, his death was so, so senseless. So I, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the person who's most impacted by Malcolm X's assassination mm. is going to be Dr. King, both personally and politically, because it, it, it no longer gives him the same room to maneuver um, that he had, you know, so you do have um, Stokely Carmichael, but Stokely Carmichael is not Malcolm X, you know, mm -hmm. and so um, um, King in certain ways takes on aspects of that role uh, as the late 60s progress. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk about, um, I want to touch on what the, what both of these men have to say to us today. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and I want to return you know, you kind of uh, frame the book in terms of uh, the radical, or, you know, Malcolm's idea of a radical black dignity mm -hmm. and Martin's idea of a radical black citizenship. I want to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about how you conceive those things and lay them out in the book. And I also want to, I'm kind of giving us a roadmap here because I'm mindful that we don't have all evening as much as I would like to take all evening. <laughs> Uh, I also want to touch on the, the role of women in the movement yeah. and how these, you know, when we talk about rescuing these men from the icons that we put them on, I think part of that um, 
is their relationship to women in the movement. And so I was struck by, you know, King's relationship with Ella Baker and, and Malcolm's relationship with some of the women uh, in his orbit, mm-hmm. uh, how that they were evolving, but didn't again, reach the fullness of that. Yeah, that absolutely. You know? um, so if we could spend a lot, and then kind of what in this moment do these figures have to say to us, you know? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the idea of dignity is is big and dignity is con, uh, connected to identity. It's connected to Black people having their humanity recognized. Mm. Uh, it's an, it's connected to Black power principles of um, radical social, political, economic, cultural self-determination. Um, and I think dignity for Malcolm, um, especially initially, wasn't necessarily connected to uh, any Western conceptions of democracy and Western conceptions and structures of institutions of, of, of capitalism in conventional ways, because he thought of those as hopelessly corrupt and having already failed Black people. So uh, Malcolm's notion of Black dignity was defeating and eradicating white supremacy, and then Black people themselves um, deciding what was next for them, right? Uh, not in participation or in consultation with whites. I mean, as he moves on further and becomes that human rights activist and and tells that audience in Oxford University at the Oxford debate that he's willing to align with anyone, irrespective of color, who wants to change uh, the miserable condition on the face of this earth, it evolves. But initially, um, what he means by dignity uh, is really um, Black self-determination and really a, a, a level of Black self-love that Black people um, truthfully did not have uh, in the context of the 1950s and 60s. Um, some still don't have, but I think Malcolm's biggest achievement vis-a-vis the politics of radical Black dignity is transforming Negroes uh, into Black. Uh, mm-hmm. Gil Scott Heron famously says that you're a Negro before Malcolm. Um, um, but to all the revolutions, revolutionaries in the late 60s and early 70s, um, because Malcolm was the one who was telling us we were black. Mm-hmm. Um, and Malcolm was the one who was visiting Africa. Malcolm's the one who's um, wearing African garb and calling himself El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't other people, it was Malcolm X who, who, who certainly popularizes that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it comes to King, this idea of radical black citizenship, um, it evolves over time too. But what we get with King is that his notion of citizenship is a very muscular notion of citizenship. It's not just the absence of racial oppression. Um, It's not just voting rights. It's the visible appearance of justice. Uh, It's decent housing. It's a universal basic income. Uh, King talks about food justice and not just ending hunger, but he talks about the discrimination against black farmers uh, by the Department of Agriculture and the way in which um, even the food that we eat is connected to a long history of anti-Black racism and white supremacy and racial slavery, uh, both then and now, mm-hmm. both then and now. And so um, um, this idea of citizenship as having specific um, perquisites, specific guarantees of, of healthcare, of environmental justice, of freedom of racial terror, freedom from racial terror, freedom from the terror and brutality of white law enforcement or, or really law enforcement of any color, right? And so um, um, King, this idea of citizenship and dignity, I think what's interesting is that over time they come to see you need both. 
right? Mm -hmm. So by the end of their lives, they're really, uh, Malcolm is talking about the ballot or the bullet. He's talking about human rights. He's talking about citizenship and dignity. And King is talking about the same thing. I mean, King um, is speaking behind posters that say black is beautiful. It's so beautiful to be black. He's talking about black pride and dignity in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. Um, he's saying speeches to the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that they even tell us that um, a little white lie is better than a black lie. And that's definitely Malcolm, right? Where he's looking at even the nomenclature of, of, of you know, white supremacy. In his case, he's looking at the racialization of the words, but we can also look at the, um, uh, the gender discrimination in words, which is why young people are saying, you know, they and them instead of him and her because, because these things matter, right? And so I think, I think those things become sort of framing devices uh, and concepts so we could sort of, um, wrap our heads around what they were doing because they were doing so many different things, right? right, right. And I came, I came to those uh, conceptions as a student. I mean, one thing uh, you and I both know, uh, you know, people can call you professor, you can write a million books um, and you're just a student, you know, you're just a student, that, that's all you are. Uh, you're a student, you're a teacher, you're a storyteller uh, and the other stuff um, really doesn't matter. And so I came to it as a student um, and, and it was through, it's many years now of, of reading and, and decades of reading and into the archives to try to, try to figure them out. And which is why uh, I, I wrote this book because I had it in my head for so, so long. Um, and and it, it helped me get closer uh, to both of them and to earn um, more, more respect for both of them and more knowledge and understanding of um, really the extraordinary lives they led um, and such abbreviated lives. So they packed, you know, 10 lifetimes into a very, very short amount of time. What are the, I, I wanna, you know, I laid out a few questions, but the minister in me wants to ask, you know, when I'm confronting a difficult text or I'm trying to unpack a life, right? And, and, and you know, when I'm trying to grapple with these saints and these prophets of old, uh, the question and for me, right, is, what does this person have to say to me? Um, what does this person have to say to me? You know, I tell people, um, whether we're looking to our faith traditions, whether we're looking to literature, um, whether we're looking to, a, to the life of a transformative person, there's a few questions, um, you know, that we're looking to answer. Uh, one of which is who are we, you know? Yeah. Uh, another of which is how are we to be, right? Uh, and for folks of faith, you know, what is our relationship to the divine, you know, uh, and how does that inform how we travel through the world um, with the folks that we find ourselves in that world with? Mm -hmm. As you, you talked about that idea of being a student, right? Uh, mm -hmm. As a minister, you're, you're, you're still a student, you're still struggling, you're still walking, you know, or trying to walk without stumbling, yes. right? Um, what did you, what personally did you take away, you know, when you, when you wrote the last word or when you wrote the last sentence, right, and you sat back and reflected, what was it, you know, what, what do you take with you and carry with you from both Malcolm and Martin uh, that helps you navigate the world that you find yourself in? Yeah, that's a great question, David. I think I think I took a lot. I think that um, you know they 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 each have this deep personal sincerity and empathy for Black people, for poor people. Um, I think they're both um, hugely talented um, um, and have a genius uh, for, with language. 
and, and how to articulate this um, to wide audiences and, and to make it plain, like Malcolm said. Um, I think they were men of <clears throat> deep political integrity. And then um, I think they also walked through this world with um, unapologetic love. So I think that in a lot of ways, just uh, internally, it's interesting that you asked because I was watching the um, Regina King film, uh, One Night in Miami, which is a great, great film. You know, I was in tears watching that film because so many of the, the issues that Malcolm X and Jim Brown and Sam Cooke and Cassius Clay before he's Muhammad Ali are dealing with that one night in Miami after Clay wins the heavyweight championship of the world. And he's still friends with Malcolm X. And within a week, that friendship is going to be over. Uh, Laj Muhammad's going to give him the name Muhammad Ali. And Malcolm's last ditch effort to form a new organization with the prestige and money that Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali could have injected into that organization disappears. And he is assassinated really less than a year later after that one night in Miami. Um, I think that's a great portrayal of Malcolm because you see him as a three-dimensional human being. You know, I, I of course love Denzel Washington's Malcolm, but I think subsequent portrayals of Malcolm, both in Ava DuVernay's film Selma mm -hmm. um, and, and in um, The Godfather of Harlem, uh, on on epics, a series, uh, it's been extraordinary to see just a different a different side of of Malcolm. Really, really well done, um, and I think that dovetails into the last part of your question about um, women. I think I talk in the Sword and Shield about you know how they imbibed patriarchy, how they imbibed sexism, how they had to grow. In my, Malcolm's case. Um, the Nation of Islam is really patriarchal and and you know, defining black liberation as black men um, gaining their rightful place in sort of this, this, this gendered uh, familial and political uh, framework where, where women um, are not co-equals, right? Um, and, and how leaving that organization, he had to really find himself. You know, one of his last interviews, he talks about visiting Africa and says that all the leading African nations, the most advanced nations, women were equal. Mm -hmm. He had observed that. And so in his final organization, he's got Lynn Shiflett and other Black women who, who have positions of power in the organization of Afro-American unity. Uh, and with King, it's, it's, it's more of a, um, it, it's, it's going to be um, less of, of a straight line evolution. Um, King is part of a very patriarchal, sexist Black church, which is still that now, even though uh, you can make an argument that there's growth in certain areas. Um, um, so, so King, his, his most important um, female political partner is going to be Coretta Scott King, right? Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, um, you know, when we look at it from our contemporary lens and a lens that he, as a man of faith, should have been a part of as well, uh, he did not treat women the way he should have. Um, and, and he also didn't treat issues of, of, of gender the way he should have. And neither of them really... Um, engaged with black feminist thought um, at a time when black feminist thought was there. You know, it was there to engage whether we're thinking about the second wave of black feminism of the 1960s or earlier iterations from the 19th century that they could have um, um, uh, engaged, with, yeah. engaged in. So, uh, and, and I think that's where the connection between them and this movement now is that King and Malcolm X both dealt with intersectional issues, but not intersectional identity. 
And what's been so extraordinary about Black Lives Matter and the Black women who have led that movement, and we think about uh, Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza and Brittany Packnett uh, and Opal Tometi and Tamika Mallory and No Name and just all these different women, Megan the Stallion. I mean, there's just, you know, women who are hardcore activists, Stacey Abrams, mm -hmm. um, bourgeois activists, petty bourgeois activists, uh, Kamala Harris, because we're, we're a really big diverse community, but this idea of intersectional justice and at least using a black feminist lens as part of a liberation strategy, because there's not gonna be one magic bullet and black feminism is not the magic bullet either. It's something that is expansive, that's forcing us to reimagine American democracy uh, and what we mean by human rights. And Black Lives Matter has been really extraordinary in terms of centering uh, black radical feminism, black radical queer women. We think about Combi River Collective, Barbara Smith, Audre Lorde, mm -hmm. uh, so many folks, Tony Cade Bambara, um, Alice Walker, uh, Angela Davis, um, so many different people, Fran Beal, Gwen Patton, Third World Women's Alliance, National Black Feminist Organization, uh, uh, you know, Beth Ritchie and Development Arrested, Barbara Ransby's work. Um, so so this, is, this is extraordinary. And I think that they stand on the shoulders of people, both Black women from the 19th and 20th century, first reconstruction, also the, the, the nadir, the period of the racial pogroms uh, in the United States, which is decades and decades, because in a lot of ways, reconstruction and its aftermath is just one long uh, white race riot, like we saw at the Capitol, right? Um, so it's not just Tulsa or East Elaine, Arkansas, or St. Louis, or Chicago, or, or Atlanta, um, or Colfax Massacre, South Carolina, it's Memphis, it's New Orleans, it's Texas. Uh, there are so many thousands and thousands who are gone. It goes way beyond lynching memorials. It goes way beyond what Brian Stevenson has done, the, the critical work. The pain uh, is way beyond anything that we can imagine. And that's why we don't want to uh, deal with it. We don't want to mm -hmm. confront it. And Malcolm and Martin pushed Black people to confront it. But this new generation of black leaders really led by black women alongside of black men and black queer men, black straight men, young people are, are forcing us to rethink uh, the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why when we think about the policy proposals for BLM, uh, everything from reparations to uh, black immigrant status, not just mm -hmm. Spanish speaking immigrants, but there are also Afro Latinos, but black folks are immigrants uh, too. Uh, people who are queer, people who are trans, people who are women uh, and saying we're going to center them. It doesn't mean we leave the men behind, but if we center them, right, it means we're all going to be saved, right? <laughs> it means we're all going to be saved. So I think that's been extraordinary. Uh, and certainly that's, that's a way in which the living legacies of these icons have been amplified in ways uh, that allow us to think uh, differently about the beloved community, mm -hmm. uh, to think differently about the human rights movement that Malcolm talked about, to think and elevate uh, a cast of characters that's gonna include uh, you know, the Pauli Murrays and include the Bayard Rustins and James Baldwin standing front and center and not having to be in any closets, <laughs> not having to <laughs> not talk about their issues, 
uh, not have to say, uh, you know, being gay is somehow some white thing <laughs> that they put into our community, that it's not, it's not just being a human being. So it's, it's, uh, it's really important and critical what's, what's happened. And it's really been great to see. And I think that absolutely Malcolm and Martin would have embraced that. Mm. I want to, so there's a couple questions. I want to get weird. I want to do a couple of questions here. We got a couple of questions. We've talked about uh, the kind of international nature of these uh, of these figures. And uh, so we have one question and we're going to the Q&A here about the impact Boston had. Uh, you've spent time here, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we've been here for a while now. Um, you know, Malcolm, at one point you recount how Malcolm said, you know, my first, first time I was in Cambridge, I was arrested. The second time I was in Cambridge, I was talking at Harvard Law School, you know. Uh, and certainly, you know, uh, Martin uh, at BU and what have you. So can you talk about a, a little bit about the impact that Boston had on, on these men? Uh, and also I do wanna get to, uh, you know, this um, idea of, we've, we've touched on this, right? Their, their message for us today. Um, there is a kind of shock and I have certainly heard this you know, in my conversations with some folks uh, about this insurrection that's taken place here, mm -hmm. at the Capitol, right? Would Martin and Malcolm be surprised by that? Um, talk a little bit about that, what they would- Very, very quickly, because I know we don't have time and I've got a hard six <laughs> to be out as a dad. Um, you know, Boston's key, especially I would say for Malcolm, uh, because he was in Roxbury, it's part of uh, the second, place he really got his hustle on. The first is East Lansing, Michigan. Then it becomes Boston and then becomes Harlem. And he goes back, he, he spends a couple of years in Harlem and then comes back to Boston where eventually he's arrested for a ser ser series of burglaries. So Boston is really um, big. I mean, Boston and Harlem is where he meets jazz players. He learns to be a hustler. He learns to be basically a sociologist, an urban sociologist and an urban anthropologist and political scientist. That's what Malcolm is and historian. So he's really a polyglot, uh, but, but you know, Roxbury forever is part of the Malcolm X um, legend. Uh, so that's, that's really important. King um, in his time at Boston University uh, in New England is important. I mean, he appreciated New England for its relatively relaxed uh, racial uh, you know, system of Jim Crow. It had its own system of Jim Crow, but it wasn't as brutal as Georgia's mm -hmm. from somebody who was from Georgia, right? Okay. So, we, so it doesn't mean that it was great, but mm -hmm. Georgia was so rough that when King went to Chester, Pennsylvania, or he was at BU, he was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is like, that's how bad it is. So it's by racism is always the thing by comparison, right? Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in this country. Uh, but some places it's even more acute than others, right? Um, and, and then, you know, when you, when you say about like today and now, I think that this, the shock about the insurrection, Malcolm would not have been shocked. And I don't think the latter day King would have been shocked because by 66, King is in Chicago and, and he's trying to do open housing in Chicago and the suburbs. And there's mobs of 5,000 white folks mm -hmm. who are pelting bricks uh, and bats at King, uh, bigger than any of the mobs that had, he had faced down in places like Philadelphia, Mississippi, where they murdered uh, law enforcement and racial terrorists, murdered 
uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman uh, mm -hmm. on June 21st, 1964. So um, I think he, he would not have been surprised uh, uh, as he evolved. And, and certainly Malcolm would not have been surprised at all about, about the insurrection. Yeah. I've got a question here about uh, the Center for the Study of Race uh, and Democracy. Uh, that uh, and and what role can academia play in ending injustices? Well, I think we can play a, a big role. We have a center, the center I founded there at Tufts University is still uh, there, and and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kendra Field and 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 Kerry are, are are leading that center, doing doing a, a great job. And um, uh, I think the academy can do a lot. It's about all of us leveraging our resources in terms of how we educate our students how we utilize resources to impact uh, public education and public history about what's going on, but also how we leverage the resources of the university to impact black and brown and poor communities to both invite them into the university, have access, whether it's as students or faculty or staff or access to our programming, access to our physical spaces, but um, using the, the, the talent and the resources of the university to go out into communities and to teach folks who are K through 12, to teach teachers. And I'm saying you do all this for free, <laughs> by the way. Um, you're, what, what we do at the CSRD in Austin, those aren't the things that you're accepting honorarium for or you're accepting anything for. You're going in uh, and doing this and spending your time and trying to utilize um, the corporate power and prestige of the university um, um, to, impact supply chains of power and privilege and bend them towards neighborhoods and people who've never had access. So we've invited people and really facilitated people coming to UT Austin, the LBJ school and different events um, who never, black people who never stepped foot on campus, you know, mm -hmm. and they live a you know, couple of miles away on the east side. Some of the last people who are still here because the east side is being gentrified in the same manner as downtown Brooklyn, Oakland, Washington DC and other places where you kick all the black people out and now you have the palatial homes and the prestigious schools and there's there the schools are prestigious because they're all white right <laughs> you know what I mean so um, yeah so so there there's a big role that we have and um, um, I think increasingly thousands of academics have really embraced that especially black academics and academics who do black studies who do queer studies uh, who do ethnic studies, mm. uh, women's studies, have embraced um, the calling of public history. Indeed. Peniel, I want to thank you for being here. Uh, I could do this all night. Uh, we There is a concept, uh, certainly in the Christian tradition, of charism, right? Uh, the unique gift that we bring uh, to the world and, and carry with us. This was a gift for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate you making the time to, to talk with us.